the podcast, etc. Ruth the Moabite, an unlikely hero. That's my title today. Ruth the Moabite is a fascinating character. She's one of those biblical characters that kind of defies definition. But the reason she is so important is because she is the founding matriarch of the Davidic royal family. And that's not an insignificant role. Ruth the Moabite is one of the most significant women in Jewish history. And the question is, why, if she is such a significant woman, don't we understand more about her? We have one story in Tanakh about Ruth. It's contained in the book of Ruth. In fact, she has an entire book devoted to her, but we don't know much about her, which must mean one of two things. The first is that what we don't know about her, we don't need to know about her. And what we do know about her is extremely significant. And what I'd like to do today is build a bit of a, a backdrop. You know, uh, that every story has a backstory. And even if you don't know the story, the backstory from the story itself, very often when you're informed of the details of the backstory, it gives the story itself much more significance. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about the significance of Ruth the Moabite in Jewish tradition and Jewish history. And at the same time, understand the context in which she emerged and why indeed she is so important and what lessons we can learn from her. And after all, we read the story of Ruth the Moabite on Shavuos. What is the significance of Rus Hamoyavia, the matriarch of the Davidic royal family? So, the first source I'm going to look at is a source in Rus Rabba. Rus Rabba is the Medrash on Rus. And the question that the um, the Medrash is dealing with, it comes at it from a kind of side angle, but in this extremely important question. There's lots of women in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Tremendous number of women. None of them have their own book. You, let's take Miriam. Miriam is the sister of Moshe Rabbeinu. She's a very significant woman. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that many significant things happen to her besides for what we know about her from the Torah, but she doesn't have her own book. And there are other significant women. There's only two women who have their own book. One is called Esther. Well, when we get to Purim, we'll talk about her. And the other one is called Rus. The question is, why does Rus deserve her own book? That's really what the Medrash wants to address. I'm really going to read you the, mes the Medrash. Omar Rebzeira. Rebzeira, his name was also Rebzeira, was a significant Talmudic rabbi. And he says as follows about the book of Rus. Megilozu einba loituma veloitahara. This Megillah, Megillas Rus, doesn't have any rules relating to purity or impurity. Nor does it talk about any things which are either forbidden or allowed. 
In which case, why was it written? Why was this story recorded? The answer is, says Reb Zeira in this Medrash, to teach you the fundamental lesson of Megillas Rus is to teach you how great is the reward for those who do kindnesses. I'm going to come back to that. I think it's a tremendous answer. I mean, if it was just worth you logging into Zoom today to hear that, it was worth it. You can log off now. Don't, by the way, stay on. But if it was just worth it for that, it was worth it. Just to teach you an entire book of Tanakh, only written to teach you that there's a great reward for those who do kindnesses. I'm going to come back to that. I want to really address a question as to how Ruth the Moabite might have been perceived by the Jews living in her time. It's an important question, right? What would they have thought of Ruth? What, in fact, did they think of strangers? Now, I have to tell you, and we're going to get to this in a moment, that there was nothing worse in ancient history than being a stranger in a place where nobody knew who you were and nobody cared whether you lived or died. Now, it's bad enough if people know who you are and don't care if you live or die. But if they don't know who you are, they're certainly not going to care whether you live or die. And moreover, they're going to be extremely suspicious of you. Ancient history, and I'm not going to go into all the historical examples, I'm going to just give you some examples from Tanakh. But ancient history is littered with examples of people who suffered simply for being strangers in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm going to give you a quote from Mark Twain. Mark Twain was an extremely important American writer of the 19th century and he wrote an autobiography, not many people read it uh, anymore, I have it, and it's full of pithy observations about life. He was a very sharp observer of human nature. And Mark Twain said as follows about how people judge others. He spoke about himself. I suspect he did so only to use himself as a foil. But this is what he said. Figures often beguile me, particularly when I have the arranging of them myself, in which case the remark attributed to Disraeli would often apply with justice and force. There are three kinds of lies. Lies damned lies and statistics. He's talking about how human nature tends to generalize about, about things that they know little about. So whatever the case may be, when you look at a particular type of person, you're going to judge them on the basis of a statistical um, piece of information that you may have at the back of your mind about that person. Statistics are going to guide you. Statistics are going to illuminate your thinking. 
by the way, probably darken your thinking. Because as Disraeli said, there's no greater lie than a statistic. And uh, you, know, you, know the, you know the question, if I buy a winning lottery ticket, and I've won the lottery, what are the chances of me winning the lottery again? Statistically, it's no different every single time I buy a lottery ticket. I have the same chance of winning as the last time I bought the lottery ticket. But in your mind, you think, if I've won it once, either you're going to think, if you're a gambler, you'll think, well, I'll probably win again. And if you're not a gambler, you'll think, I'll never win again. In other words, you'll base your judgment on what you think is the statistical chance but actually, it has no relationship with reality. Similarly, people. So he used this um, analogy when he was trying to define those he came across in his many travels. Figures beguile me, he said. Statistics obviously beguiled him. Why? Because he had come across so many ex exceptions to the rules that he had been uh, told to believe as he grew up and as he was an adult. Figures beguile him. What would statistics have determined with regard to Ruth the Moabite in the era in which she lived? So I would say this. Human beings are incapable of considering a stranger somebody not of their own kind, objectively. We tend to generalise, and we assume that each individual from within any group reflects the general characteristics of that group. I mean, we're Jews, so we know that people consider us at the same time to be very uh, uh, stingy. Um, also, we must be very rich. Also, you know, I, I was on a, a, a trip with Christians to Israel, and one of the pastors asked me, why is it that all Jews are rich? I said, would you mind if I gave you the number of my bank manager, because I'm just trying to arrange a big loan. <laughs> Maybe if you tell him I'm rich, he'll believe you, and he's more likely to give me the loan. But that's a generalization that you as a Jew, watching this Zoom sheer, are only too familiar with. But we're just as guilty as everyone else. We judge others who are different to us. We judge strangers who are different to us based on our generalized preconceptions about who they are and what they represent. We're all guilty of this attitude. We see any hint of group characteristics as absolute proof, proof, incontrovertible proof of our assumptions. And the more hostile we feel towards the group from which the stranger comes, or the more hostile we feel that group's feelings are towards us, the more hostile the acts of individuals from that group are interpreted by us. Which brings me to what I mentioned earlier that I would reveal to you. What was the attitude in the era of the Bible, of Tanakh, towards strangers? It's a good question, right? I have to tell you, 
you don't have to wait very long to find out the answer to that question when you start reading at the beginning of Bereshis. What was the punishment for Cain? Cain. Cain and Hevel. Cain kills his brother Hevel. What was his punishment? Does anyone remember? Don't all shout out at once. It's a posuk in the Torah. Right at the beginning of Bereshis, Perik Dalad, posuk yud base. Na vanad You shall become a ceaseless wanderer on the face of the planet. You will not have a home. You will always be a stranger in a strange place. There was no greater punishment at the time of the Torah, at the very dawn of human history, than to be a stranger in a strange place, to be a wanderer on the face of the earth. It's the first punishment recorded in the Torah. Can you imagine that? That was the punishment. What was Cain's response to God? Cain said to God, God I'll avoni minasai hargeni. Cain said, Hashem, give me any punishment. Any punishment you can think of, just don't give me that one. It is too great to bear. Anyone who meets me will kill me. Do you know how strangers were treated at the time of the Bible? They were killed. Their life was in mortal danger. Cain's life was in mortal danger simply because he was a Novanod Baaretz. That is how strangers were treated at the time of the Torah. What about Avraham Avinu? Avraham Avinu came to Egypt with his wife. What happened? He was thrown into jail and his wife was kidnapped. That is how strangers were treated at the time of the Torah. What about the angels, the Malachim, who came to Sodom? And they were in the house of Lot. A mob gathered at Lot's door and said, Give us those strangers. We would like to, f- to kill them, to destroy them. How dare you bring strangers into our city? Yaakov and Lovon. How was Yaakov treated as a stranger in a country that he wasn't born in? He was treated as an outsider. He wanted to marry Rachel. Lovon gave him Leon. He says, how dare you do this to me? You made a promise that I can marry your daughter Rachel. That's not the way we do it in our place. And what could Yaakov do? Absolutely nothing. There was no recourse for a stranger. There was no protection for a stranger. If you were an outsider at the time of the Bible, you were out. You were finished. That is the lot of the stranger at the time of the Torah. 
So were Moab, this, the nation of Moab, were they considered strangers at the time of the Torah? Absolutely. We have a quotation in scripture. It's in Devarim Perik of Gimel, Pasuk Dalad and Pasuk Hay. No Ammonite nor Moabite shall be admitted into the congregation of God. None of their descendants, even the tenth generation, shall ever be admitted into the congregation of God. You're listening to that? Ten generations. Because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey after you left Egypt. They treated you like strangers, rejected you, marginalized you, mistreated you, so they do not deserve to belong to our community. They are them, we are us, and it's not Mark Twain, you'll tell me where it's from, never the Twain shall meet. And because they hired Bilam, the son of Boer, from Petor of Aram Naraim to curse you, Moyov are outsiders. They're not our people. They are strangers. What was Rus? Rus was a Moabite. Rus was from Moyov. How would she have been treated or perceived at the time of the Torah, at the time of the Tanakh, as an outsider, as a danger, as one of that ten generations who cannot be included in the Kahal Hashem, in the congregation of God. There is a chapter in Shoftim that talks about the Moabites. The chapter is in Shoftim, Aleph, Judges 1, Perigimel, Posuk Yud Beis, Psukim Yud Beis to Tesvav. The children of Israel continued to do that which displeased God, and God strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. They were enemies. What happens when your enemy becomes stronger than you? He's a danger. He could kill you. He could destroy you. He could be victorious against you in battle. Why did Hashem do this? Because they had done that which displeased God. And Eglon gathered him, the children of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and struck against Israel and took possession of the city of the date palms. And the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Eglon, the king of Moab, was not considered a sugar daddy. He wasn't somebody who was a friend of the Jews. He was somebody who was perceived as an enemy of the Jews. He was the epitome of the Moabites of his time. And every Jew considered Moabites and Moab to be the enemy. And the children of Israel cried out to God, and God raised up a saviour for them, Ehud ben Gera, from the tribe of Binyamin, a man with a shriveled right hand. And the children of Israel sent him to give a gift to Eglon, the king of Moab. I'm not going to go over the story, but he killed Moab, uh, Eglon, the king of Moab. Eglon, who was rather portly, had a dagger thrust into him, all the way into him, so that uh, so that uh, Ehud's hand went right into his innards. Quite a gruesome story. 
Mayav was the enemy. Mayav was strangers. Mayav was the outsider. Even though they were neighbors of the land of Israel, even though that perhaps we were related because Mav was descended from Light, nevertheless, they treated us as strangers and that's the way we treated them. Okay, so you're going to say that that was at a particular moment in history. Perhaps things had changed. Perhaps Rus, the Ruth the Moabite, was not considered an outsider because attitudes had changed at the time when she emerged. Let's have a look. When did the story of Ruth the Moabite actually take place in history? And how was Moab perceived in those days? So the Gemara in Baba Basra, Daftsadi Aleph, Omad Aleph, says as follows. Omar Rabba Barav Huna Omar Rav, Ivtson Zeboyaz. Who was Boaz? Boaz was Rus's husband. He was the man who took care of Rus and Naomi in this time of famine when they came to glean wheat in his field. Who was he? Boaz is not a name that is mentioned anywhere besides for the book of Rus, besides for Megillas Rus. Who was he? Says Rabba Baravhuna, one of the significant Talmudic sages, based on tradition we know that Boaz was none other than Ivtson. Ivtson was one of the shoftim, one of the judges of that period of Jewish history between the conquest of the land of Canaan and the building of the Beis Amikdash, the Malchus Beis David, first the Malchus Shol and the Malchus Beis David. There was a period of a few hundred years when the Mishkan was in Shiloi and in other places before the Beis Amikdash was built, when we were ruled by a series of what was referred to, is referred to in Jewish tradition as Shoftim, as judges, and there are books of judges, Shoftim Aleph and Shoftim Beis. What does the Medrash say about Ivtson, about Boyaz? Vayikach Boyaz Ezrus, Omru Oisra Shebo Oleho Meis. You know that Boyaz married Rus, took her as his wife, and on the very night that he had relations with her, he died. That night, which is recorded in Megillas Rus, is the last night of his life. He was a very elderly man, and he died. Rus went on to become pregnant and have children, and King David is descended from her. Vayeshvu Shom Ke'eser Shonim. So we know that Rus, in the beginning of Megillas Rus, we know that Elimelech, who was Naomi's husband, lived in Moyav for roughly 10 years. We know that Ivtson, Boyaz, was the leader for seven years. Listen carefully, we need to, we need to work this out. I know that, uh, I'm not Mark Twain, by the way, I'm quite good with figures. Ivtson died on the night that he had a relations with Rus. He had, he, Boyaz, Ivton is one and the same person. He was the ruler of the Jewish nation for seven years. We know that Elimelech, 
and his family lived in Moyov for 10 years, which means for the final three years of whoever it was who preceded Ivtson Boyaz as the leader of the Jewish nation. Who was that person? Now we know that that was the era in which they lived. Who was that person? And what was their relationship with Moyov? Yiftach. None other than Yiftach was the leader directly before Ivtson Boyaz, who we know was the person who took Rus Hamoyavia as his wife. During Yiftach's reign, the king of the Ammonites, the Melech of Ammon, claimed that Hevel Hagilod, a particular place, belonged to Ammon and Moyav. It didn't belong to the Jewish nation. And that the Israelites had illegitimately occupied the land. By the way, sound familiar? Jews occupying land that belongs to them? In any event, he demanded, as a condition for peace, that the Israelites return the entire Gilad region. What did Yiftach do? Was he impressed? Did he agree? Did he say, Moab are good people, they're absolutely right, they have a claim on our land, let's make an arrangement with the United Nations, a partition? What did Yiftach do? Yiftach gave a political speech. The text of that speech is recorded in Melochim, uh, in Shoftim Aleph, Perek Yud Aleph, and this was his argument. This is what Yiftach said. Israel did not take the land of Moab and the land of the children of Ammon. Because when they came up from Egypt and Israel went through the wilderness up to the Red Sea, they came to a place called Kadesh. Kadesh. And Israel sent messages to the king of Edom and they said, let me pass now through your land. What did the king of Edom respond, said Yiftach? The king of Edom didn't listen to them. And also they sent a message to the king of Moab, And he too was unwilling. And Israel stayed in Kadesh. And then they went through the wilderness. And they went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab. And they came to the east of the land of Moab and they encamped on the other side of Arnon. And they did not come within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. My friends, we have here evidence in Tanakh that the relationship at the time of Rus Moabia between the Jewish nation and the kingdom of Moab was not one of great friendship and love. Yiftach, who was the leader before Boaz, had engaged in a very difficult interaction between his country and Moab. And as far as any Jew living in Eretz Yisrael was concerned, Moab was not just an outsider. They were the enemy. They were looking to claim land that wasn't theirs and to kill Jews who were innocent. That was the relationship between Moab and the Israelites at the time of Rus HaMoyavia. Okay, so you're going to say 
I mean, you're listening to me. By the way, I have to admire your patience. Thank you so much. You're listening to me and you're thinking to yourself, okay, so that was the relationship between two countries. But individuals can get on. After all, even if you are from Mayov, doesn't mean that you should be hated in the country that is the enemy of your nation. What was the relationship between Jews and Rus? Knowing that Rus had married into a family that was, after all, one of the leading families of the Jewish nation at that time. Surely, merely because she had married one of the sons of Elimelech and was now living in Eretz Yisrael as the daughter-in-law of Naomi, she should be considered as a kind of quasi-Jew, a guest Jew, even if her origins were in Mayav. Let me tell you that the Medrash is unequivocal about the way in which Elimelech and his family were perceived by the Jewish nation as a result of their self-imposed exile in Mayav during the famine that occurred during their lifetime. By the way, Elimelech, Machloin and Chilion all died in Mayav. One must assume that they were buried there. How was Elimelech perceived by the Jewish nation during the period in which he left Eretz Yisrael and moved to Mayav so that he could avoid the famine that was causing such problems in the land of his birth, the land of his nation, Eretz Yisrael? This is a Medrash Rabbah in Rus. Loma Ne'enash Elimelech. The Medrash assumes that the death of Elimelech was a punishment for the fact that he had abandoned his nation. Loma Ne'enash, why was he punished? Because he struck despair into the heart of Israel. He ruled the country for nothing. And the citizens were sure. They knew that he was such a wealthy man that should the country suffer a famine, a lack of of economic success that he could sustain them through his wealth for 10 years because that's how fabulously wealthy and well-resourced he was. But when the years of famine finally came, his maid went to the market stalls and her basket was in her hand. And the people of the land said, About this person we said that if there is a shortage, he could sustain us and supply us for 10 years. How is that possible? 
His maid is standing in the marketplace and her basket is in her hand. She's doing nothing for anyone. His representative, his messenger, is doing nothing to help anyone. This man is a miser. This man is wicked. We gave him every respect. We showed him the respect that we thought would result in him taking care of us in our hour of need. And he does nothing for us. Elimelech was one of the great leaders of his district and one of the financial supporters, so-called, of his generation. However, but when the years of need came, he said, Look, all the people of Israel are coming to bother me. They're knocking at my door and driving me crazy to help them. I can't be bothered for this. This one with his basket and that one with his container trying to get me to support them. He imposed upon himself an exile and ran away from them so that he wouldn't have to support them. I prefer to be an anonymous person with all my wealth in a foreign country than to be in the country of my birth and help those with whom I grew up and who need my help and support. It's a medrash. This is the medrash. Rus Rabba. This is the beginning of Rus when it says, and a man, this Ish, this significant individual, left the land of Israel, abandoned his brethren, despite his leadership position, decided that he had nothing to give the people with whom he had grown up, and whom he, were his compatriots and fellow citizens, co-religionists. I have nothing to do with you. I don't want to help you. You're bothering me. Go away. And he left and went into exile. Self-imposed exile, no doubt. He had plenty of wealth when he left and lived in Moyov, the land of the enemy. That's Elimelech. So the fact that Rus married into the family of Elimelech would have done her no good whatsoever. She was not going to be able to say, well, one second, I know I'm a Moavia, I'm a Moabite, but, but come on, I'm one of you. I'm married into the family of Elimelech. Who? Elimelech? We hate him. He's the person who abandoned us. We put great hopes in him. But when, the, when it came to the crunch, he had nothing to offer us. We don't like him, and therefore... We don't like you, and we certainly don't like you because you are a Moyavio. So I think I've painted a pretty strong picture that Rus Hamoyavio was a despised or should have been a despised figure in her lifetime, both in terms of the fact that she was a stranger and in terms of the fact that she was from Moyov. In addition to which she was married into a hated family. If anyone had no chance in Eretz Yisrael, it was Rus HaMoyavia. In which case, how is it possible that not only she is worthy 
of a book in her own right in Tanakh, but moreover, she is worthy of being the matriarch of the Davidic royal dynasty. What is going on here? What is it that Rus did that managed to counteract all of these incredible impediments to her advancement as a woman of significance in Jewish history and in the Jewish faith? I want to take you to a bunch of psukim in Rus that deal with Boyaz's reaction to Rus when he saw her for the first time. Rus Perek base, Posuk Gimel, Dalad, and Hay. Listen carefully. Vatelech Vatovoi Vatelakate Basode. Rus came and gleaned in a field. Achari Hakoitrim behind the reapers. Vayiker Mikreho Chelkas Hasode. Leboyaz Asher Mimishpachas Elimelech. And as luck would have it, guess what? She had no idea. She happened to glean wheat in a field that belonged to a man called Boyaz, that as it happened, was the family of Elimelech, her father-in-law. Now, Boyaz didn't regularly come to the field during the time of the harvest, but it happened to be that Boyaz came home from Beislechem, and he went out into the field to say hello to the people who were harvesting the produce. Vayoymer Boyaz. And Boyaz said, Lemi Hanaara Hazois. To whom does this girl belong? Quite a question. Vayan Hanar. I'm going to get back to that question, by the way. It's a curious question. You have to agree. It's a rather strange question. Vayan Hanar. So what did his worker respond, the lad? Hanitsov Alakoitrim, the person who was supervising the harvesters. Vayoymar, and he said, Nara Moyavio. Don't take any notice of her. She is a Moabite lady. Um, a Moabite girl. Ha Shova im Noomi Miste Moyav who returned with Naomi from the fields of Moab. The Na'ar, the supervisor, the person who was taking care of the harvest, knew exactly who Rus was. And as far as he was concerned, she was a Nova Nod Baaretz. She was like Cain. She was an outsider. Had he been from Sodom, he would have made every effort to ensure her immediate demise. But he lived in a cultured environment where laws and regulations prevented him from killing her. But nevertheless, when his boss questioned him as to who she was, his immediate response was, ah, don't take any notice of her. She's a nar on Moyavia. She's from that despised Moabite nation that we all hate and that are our enemies. What does Rashi say? 
Rashi has an interesting observation. And now we come back to the question that Boyaz asked. Rashi says, who, who was Boyaz? Do you know who Boyaz was? He was the greatest man of his generation. He was the holiest Jew of his generation. I know we just call him Boyaz and he appears in Megillas Rus. Boyaz was, you know, I wrote an article yesterday about Rabbi Kiva Eger. Rabbi Kiva Eger. He was Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky. He was the Chofetz Chaim. He was the Baal Shem Tov. Really? He came to his field and his first question was, Lemi Hanara Hazois? Who is this pretty girl? What's going on here? How is Boyaz, the great Boyaz, the leading spiritual example of his generation, asking a question about a woman who's harvesting in his field? What is... By the way, it's not my question. It's Rashi's question. Rashi says, Was it the habit of Boyaz to ask questions about women? Elo. Listen carefully. Rather because he saw her modest and wise behavior. He was curious about her behavior because he observed that she would take two ears of wheat and three she wouldn't glean. She would only take two. And she would glean those which were still standing while she was standing and those which were lying on the ground while she was squatting down. Why? In order to avoid bending over. In order that she could behave in a modest fashion. Do you know what Rus's behavior showed about her? That she was a very fine, kind, wonderful person. And he looks at this woman and it doesn't make much sense. She doesn't look Jewish. She looks like a Moabite. And after all, if we're going to go by statistics, she must be wicked. And then he sees how she behaves. And she, he says, how is it possible that all my preconceptions about Moabite women are wrong? Because this woman is behaving in the most glorious fashion. She's behaving as a woman should behave. She's behaving kindly, decently, appropriately. What is going on here? How is it possible that everything that I know, all my prejudices, are being disproved by this woman? By the way, Rashi is based on a, on a medrash, another medrash in Rus Rabba. Whose girl is this? Lemi Hanara Azois. Didn't he recognize her? Perhaps he even knew who she was. Because he knew that Naomi had come back. He knew that Rus had been married to one of his nephews. He knew who she was. But what he saw in her was completely confounded him in terms of what he expected. When he saw that she was pleasant and her demeanor was modest, he began to ask about her. All the women, says the Medrash, bent down to glean 
but she sat, she squatted in such a way that her skirt wouldn't rise up. All the women raised their dresses to work, but she kept her dress down. All the women laughed and cavorted with the harvesters, but she was reserved and remained alone. This is the Medrash, it's not Rashi. Rashi's based on this Medrash. All the women gleaned between the sheaves in places where they shouldn't have taken any wheat. But she, she only gleaned, she only took the wheat that was meant for her, that should be gleaned by those to whom it was meant for. My friends, Rus Hamoyavia confounded all stereotypes. She was someone who'd risen above her national characteristics, whatever they were in her day. She may have come from a nation that was an enemy of the Jews and whose behavior was totally inappropriate, but she had become one of the greatest and most righteous women of her day. Lemi Hanar Hazais, the greatest Jewish leader of his time, Boaz, Ivtson, who lived at a time when his nation was in open conflict with Moab, looked at this Moabite woman and said, How is this possible? How is it possible for somebody to be so special and come from the background that she has emerged from? I'm going to read you a piece from Josephus, an incredible piece from Antiquities chapter 5, 11. I felt compelled to give this account of Ruth, says Josephus, when he recalls the story of Rusa Moyavia. Why? To show the power and wise dispensations of God, who can raise up ordinary people to the most elevated dignity as in this instance, with King David emerging from such people, from Ruth the Moabite. My friends, Ruth's behaviour is proof to us that no matter your origins, no matter your handicaps, no matter where you come from or your behaviour, your disposition, No matter your preconceptions about others and how you expect other people to behave, nothing is predetermined in life. And people who are in the lowest possible situation, whose fortunes have been damaged and dented, someone like Ruth the Moabite, who was from the despised nation, who married into a despised family, who was a stranger in Novanod Ba'oretz, managed to make such an impression on Boyaz, on Ivtson, that even at his elderly age, it was the last day of his life, he married her. And she conceived and became the matriarch of the greatest royal family of human history, the Davidic monarchy. That is the power of Megillas Rus. There may be no Tuma and Tahara in the book of Rus. There may be no Isur and no Heter in Megillas Rus. But what we have is Kamos Chartoiv Legoim Lechasodim. 
what we have is the great reward that is recorded to anyone who excels in kindnesses, in behavior, in modesty, in rising up above anything that could hold them back and becoming greater than the sum of their parts. That is the story of Rus. That is why we read about Rus on Shavuos. Because on Shavuos, the festival on which we commemorate receiving the Torah, the Aseres Adibris at Mount Sinai, the Sinai Revelation, we record how a nation of slaves managed in just seven weeks to be a nation that was worthy of receiving the Torah. We can rise above the mundane aspects, the handicaps of our personalities to become great in and of ourselves and in our nation and receive the Torah. That is the message of Rus and that is why Rus deserves her own book. Thank you so much for listening.